Welcome to The Threat Show, powered by Fletch. I think security teams are really embracing trying to work better with development teams. You're seeing more and more developers actually move from a pure development role into a security role. And you start being able to bring a mentality of, let's build automated tools, let's understand the actual code when we're working on these things. Sure, you have the technical skills, but I think the real impact for these teams is that they start being able to build up trust and rapport with the other side. It's a very big challenge to even get some momentum where there's some trust being built up so that you can have a dialogue around. I know that we have very clear business goals that we need to achieve. Of course, we want to enable that. And let's also do it in a safe way, right? Like not but, never use but like in the conversation, always use and like, let's figure out how we can mitigate risk as much as we can. Hi, welcome to The Threat Show. I'm Darren Kinlan at Fletch and joining me back as always, Chris Wilder, Research Director and Senior Analyst at Tag Cyber. Hey, welcome back, Chris. Oh, it's good to be back. Thanks. Had to take off last week, but ready to go today. So. In addition, this week, we're joined by another special guest, Andrew Peterson, co-founder of Visa Ventures, a seed venture capital fund investing in the next generation of cyber and infrastructure founders. Andrew is an acclaimed and recognized founder, board member, advisor, and investor in all things information security. Prior to Aviso, he was the CEO and co-founder of Signal Sciences, where he led the company in the creation of their industry-defining technology platform to protect websites, mobile apps, and APIs. Throughout his career, Andrew has built a leading-edge, highly-performing product and sales teams across five continents with companies like Etsy, Google, and the Clinton Foundation. He's also authored a book called Cracking Security Misconceptions to encourage non-security professionals to participate in organizational security. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me. I'm Great. glad you got it. You, you didn't lose your breath getting through all that stuff. Sorry, sorry for the long bio. <laughs> it's a mouthful, sure. Yeah. So <laughs> we'll be talking with Andrew a little bit more about AppSec as well as some of the legal responsibilities and challenges that CISOs face in this new evolving landscape. But first, let's run through this week's threat landscape and trending threats. And it's been an interesting turn of events, I'd say, for this past week. We had certainly an uptick in the number of major threats that we were tracking down from our low around the time of July 4th holiday, certainly trending back upward. I think in terms of the actual transitions that have happened for major threats this week, We've seen a number of them go from trending to mainstream. A number that were originally emerging has actually dropped this past week with some going inactive, meaning we haven't seen anything new in the past 30 days. I'm curious, Chris, is this kind of tracking what you're seeing as well? I think it's following the, following the traditional timelines of, of threats typically start off and eventually they will at least trend. The trending is not that surprising, but what the ones that went into mainstream a little bit, but that just means that there's more threats out there and more bad actors. It's interesting. We'll see if we're in another cycle or not. I don't know. Time yeah. will tell. I don't have any uh, any kind of crazy theories on it. Just think it's different. You know, we were talking about these guys going on vacation and getting laid off. But I was going to say, it looks like attackers might take vacation also. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> So when we look at the interesting threats of the week, first on our list actually is a brand new type of tool that was discovered by researchers at Slashnext called WormGPT. It's designed to empower cyber criminals to use generative AI to potentially create better crafting phishing emails as well as generate more performant malicious code. 
This is certainly not that surprising when you look at the spectrum of how tools can be used for both good and bad purposes. We're keeping track of what this means from a defensive perspective. I think the standard guidance that most security training teams have when educating employees not to click on strange links and, and strange emails is going to be a little bit harder because now those phishing emails are going to have probably perfect grammar, perfect English. So you have to look for other evidence of malicious activity, unfortunately. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts here, Chris. The, the one thing that struck me about this one is kind of goes back to the last slide when we talked about emerging threats and kind of how there's a lull right now. I'm curious if this is going to affect that coming in the future, because now that you've taken all the ethics out of AI, you know, I could see bad actors going through and just creating a whole ton of different campaigns. The, the second part of this is just kind of some advice that we give to our DevOps teams that we work with within enterprises, especially with CISOs now, is you know a lot of folks are using GPT and using language models to, to debug their code, which is also becoming a whole nother nightmare for companies because now you're potentially putting credentials or keys or putting you know secrets out into the algorithm, into the Borg. And it's self-perpetuating. It'd be interesting to watch this one. Absolutely. A lot of people are worried about protecting online cloud services. Yeah. You know, it from being abused this way. So like OpenAI is trying to add in additional protections and controls. I think Google Bard is a little bit lagging in that effort. But honestly, there are models that cyber criminals can download offline and run without it needing a cloud service, right? Like the Llama 2 data set just got released. So it's likely that this sort of abuse, as you mentioned, Chris, is probably going to continue. And we might not necessarily see evidence of it until, you know, successful compromises start ramping up. It's funny that you mentioned like using this stuff to create perfect grammar emails. We actually used to talk to our sales team about potentially adding purposeful grammar problems into an email so that people knew it wasn't from a bot. And so I, I feel like I wonder if it'll start switching where it's like, if it's a perfect, perfect grammar email, then you know it's a bot. Yeah. <laughs> like you'll have to like mistrain, like, you know, it, it's just, cause it'll get too easy, right? To create these things. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Or maybe like messages encoded with too many emojis or some other identifier. Yeah, it's... Yeah. It's going to be like a strange scenario, I think, for the next, I don't yeah, know, the, six, the, nine The months. arms race around language is going to be an interesting one for sure. Sure. The, the only places I wouldn't send it to are hiring managers, your boss. <laughs> you want to have good grammar when you're trying to Of course. No, of course. But even if it's like one, yeah. we, we weren't like, oh, I have terrible grammar. It was like, well, I have one little thing. Yeah. It just, it's clearly like a typo or something, right? That, that's like anybody could have made that mistake. Yeah. Right. We didn't do it all the time. It was just something we like actively thought about because we're like, oh, how do we make these things seem like they're actually coming from a real person? Because they were right. Like, sure. It's not easy. So in terms of other updates on generative AI landscape, Checkpoint Security discovered a new type of malware family that is now bundling all of the components together within a single self-contained format. What is interesting about these particular findings is now the attackers are going after specific advertisements saying, hey, if you're interested in using Google AI offline, just download this code and you'll get all the benefits of large language models and generative AI without having to use the cloud service. It's entirely fake. 
But with the latest AI hype craze, we're going to see more and more evidence of these sorts of lures where an unsuspecting employee who wants to just try to improve the way that they do things at work, they might download this and not understand, oh, this is not actually legit. This is actually malware. So training employees on the appropriate ways to use this versus trying to figure this out on your own is probably going to become a bigger deal for a lot of security leaders to be able to communicate effectively what is their policy on properly using generative AI in the workplace. They're targeting this pretty heavily on Twitter, actively to students and kids and things like that to download the apps and download your own generative AI. So they're targeting that pretty heavily right now. I've seen a bunch of ads in there too for that. So. It's definitely a hard problem. And unfortunately, Google AI and all the other ones are not the only brands that are getting abused. Next on our list actually was malware that was discovered by Sophos researchers actually abusing the Sophos brand name. It's actually called Sophos Remote Access Tool. Looks legitimate in its nature, but in fact, it's actually malware. And this type of thing happens quite a bit mainly because attackers want to try to trick users into trusting a particular brand name. And so they'll abuse that brand to package their own malware. This generally is a problem for enterprises that are trying to protect their brand. They actually have teams that go out and try to look for evidence of this sort of abuse. If this is something that you haven't really considered as a medium size or enterprise business, might want to do so because eventually your customers will start getting impacted by these sorts of issues. Yeah. Remember a while ago, we came across the Silence one. And oh, uh, yeah. same thing, we almost did an entire show on it. But just kind of the postmortem on that is Silence actually took a pretty heavy beating from a branding perspective, mostly on the trust side, just because of the fact that that wasn't the first Silence thing that they called it. You know, the other one we talked about is Mac OS. So it, it is something you've got to, you've got to watch. Sophos is just the latest victim on this, but for security teams, it's important as cyber practitioners that we communicate to the entire company about this is happening and always get ahead of it from a, and consider them crisis communications because they did take a pretty significant beating about that. Silas did. Something else to think about from a security operator's <laughs> perspective. One more thing to think about. <laughs> Moving on our list, a number of new updates related to the Russia-Ukraine war and conflict. It turns out that there's another set of known vulnerabilities tied to Windows and Microsoft Office products that's actively being exploited by a Russian-based cybercriminal group known as Romcom. This particular set of vulnerabilities is actually being wildly exploited right now across any government organization involved with NATO, unfortunately. But it is likely that this sort of vulnerability will be exploited in the weeks or months to come by a larger set of cyber criminal groups out there. We've seen this happen before. Unfortunately, there are no patches available yet for this particular vulnerability. Instead, Microsoft is, is saying that you have to deploy a particular set of registry keys to block against this type of activity or use their cloud-based Office 365 platform. Just so switch to the cloud version. Right, Let's exactly. Let's do that. That's seems nice for some everybody. Come on, <laughs> are we all on cloud already? Like, it's yeah, easy. yeah. Unfortunately, not. This particular group is popping up a lot right now in Western Africa for some reason. It's become a problem. Our State Department is actually looking at how they could potentially shut it down. 
Yeah. So we'll see how this progresses. Presumably, Patch Tuesday will help protect the next round of Microsoft customers, but it's probably another couple of weeks away. The next vulnerability that we've discovered recently was actually one that was reported by Rapid7 about Adobe Cold Fusion almost like a month ago, or maybe, maybe a little bit less than that. Originally, there was a bypass that Rapid7 researchers discovered which allows any unauthenticated user to get full access to ColdFusion administrators, content management platform. They believed back then that Adobe fixed the problem with the first set of patches in that first CVE. Unfortunately though, it did not actually solve the problem. <laughs> so Adobe had to release another patch with another CVE to fully correct the issue. This is a pretty common situation, especially in rapid environments where the code base is extremely complicated and there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of tests, paths to follow. So in this particular case, right, if you're a defender and you're trying to do the right thing, which is patch quickly, even that doesn't necessarily offer you 100% protection from a defense and depth standpoint, you always have to consider that, hey, maybe the patch that you're deploying may not necessarily work all the time, in which case you might need to consider other mitigations. In this particular case, I think a WAF would have helped, you know, mitigate this problem, at least if the patch, the initial patch didn't work. Curious your thoughts here, Andrew. It always depends on like the Depends on the lab, like depends on the path that you have it set up. If you're using like a CDN based one and you don't protect your origin and they're always like, is a backdoor way to, to get in through these areas. So it's, I mean, the, the devil's in the details in this stuff, but like absolutely mm -hmm. software patching doesn't always fix the problem. Also like WAPs don't always fix the problem. Like, like ultimately right. people sometimes put some type of blocking rule in place to try to stop like a specific path and they forget to mm -hmm. fix the root cause and, and update that as well. And so it's, I think you had mentioned it before, this right. is a defense in depth type of scenario, but like absolutely WAP is one of the tools that has been historically used in this, this scenario. Absolutely. Makes sense. And that kind of addresses the next vulnerability, which is related not necessarily to content management systems, but actually application delivery controllers. Specifically, Citrix has discovered a brand new set of in-the-wild exploited vulnerabilities related to their Netscaler, ADC, and Gateway products. Unfortunately, these are basically a problem if you have any of these proxies open, accessible, publicly accessible on the internet, and they're functioning in some sort of direct public authentication manner. It would allow the attackers to get in and basically get full access to these devices. Thankfully, there are fixes available for this issue. But again, let's say you've got a test QA process for pushing out these sorts of patches and you can't necessarily patch immediately because of other business reasons, then having another layer of defense here could be very helpful, including potentially a WAF, if that's even possible. Patching always sounds easier than it is. And tools that security teams need to be able to have to be able to mitigate and, and timing is a big part of this, right? Because security teams can know about burning issues and burning threats that are existing and live in their environment and have very little control over fixing those things. And so finding additional controls where they actually can have some control to put 
you know, even if it's a stopgap, even if it's not a perfect stopgap in place, like it's kind of the lifeblood of a, a security professional these days. Absolutely. The advice that we give to, to our enterprises is if, if you don't have it, you have to get MFA first. Second is Vault Scanner. Number three is Laugh. And especially if you're running, if you're if you're managing apps, and patching is one of those things that a lot of times is a, has been traditionally done by IT departments as opposed to security teams, but now they're commingled. And you're absolutely right. A lot of companies talk about patching, but there's very few of, especially the big ones. A lot of times they don't even know where their systems are, where they're vulnerable. It's one of those things that people just get wrapped around the axle and they try to solve very tactical challenges as opposed to thinking towards the future. Chris, you make such a good point there that like, it's not actually about, do you actually have the directions for updating the code? It's yeah. a lot of times it's like, where does it even live? Like, where does the code right. live? What, what boxes are they? Are they actually in some location? Do we have control over those? Was a market, did a marketing team like outsource this to somebody else? Like you'd think that this stuff is straightforward. It is far from straightforward. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So that kind of covers our threats for the week. Let's switch the conversation over to more of the strategic challenges that you mentioned, Andrew. Specifically, you mentioned how security is not black and white. There's always this gray area, right? There's all these different challenges. I'm curious, from your perspective, what are some of the key trends that you're observing right now? And what's changed recently that's made a sizable shift in the decision-making of security operators or CISOs? Look, the industry changes slowly. You just start there, right? And when, when people sure. talk about, you know, what's the trend of this quarter or next quarter, it's like, I think it's one of the things that has been a reality of working in security in the last 15 years is really understanding that while I know a lot of us want to see faster changes in this stuff, because I think we absolutely have some solutions to some of these persistent challenges that everybody has, it's slow to change. And so I hesitate to really say like, oh, here's like the cutting edge, like trend, because it's not, you know, it's like the cutting edge trend is maybe a five-year trend instead of like, you know, the, a three month one. But like my career in security has really always been focused on the convergence of software development and security issues. I think that that's always been a particular challenging point for kind of a lot of the stuff that Chris, you were mentioning where it's like, it's not actually a security problem a lot of times, it's like a political problem within organizations, yeah. like learning how to work well with these other teams, even knowing who the other teams are, why would you right. interact with them? Like, why would they care to listen to you, Mr. Security person who has your tinfoil hat on all the time? Like these challenges are the ones that I think traditionally have been much harder for security teams to navigate. And if you have buy-in and org structures and the way your teams roll up, if you're rolling up within the same org, it can, it can alleviate some of these problems. But the reality is you're just trying to get any progress done at all if you're on a security team. And most of the time you're going to go path of least resistance. And if path of least resistance leads you to working on things that you have full control over instead of having to collaborate with other teams, AKA like development teams, like that's typically where you're probably going to at least start and focus mm -hmm. your efforts on. So I think the theme that I've seen probably over, call it, 10 years, but I think the thing that's actually really changed to your point, there actually has been some changes in the last three months has been the scrutiny that we're seeing put on CISOs from a legal and sort of a government perspective on having to take like real responsibility, some scary potential legal outcomes in the context of the stuff. And so I think the conversations I've had more recently, let's call it three to six months with CISOs, like this is a real growing concern of theirs of understanding if they even want to take the job or not. 
Yeah. Because wow. of understanding real risk for them personally, juxtaposed with very little control on what, let's call it government entities or whatever, sort of the, the, the way the law is written in terms of what they should have control over within organizations to have an impact change within those organizations. One of the misnomers about being a CISO is just because you have a C in your title doesn't mean you actually have a, you're up there. You know, you typically obviously report to somebody else like CIO or CSO, and that's changing. And just to your point earlier about application development and cybersecurity, we live in a world where app development guys are motivated by speed and we're looked at as the enemy because we want to be deliberate as security professionals. That's hopefully changing. Joe Sullivan has really changed how CISOs are looking at the world and, and also disclosure and people are getting coaches or they have to get insurance. That, you know, it's just, it's changing the whole side of that. So the things that I've seen that have been really positive in the last, let's call it five years, are that I think security teams are really embracing trying to work better with development team. You're seeing more and more developers actually move from a pure development role into a security role. And when I've seen that happen, you start being able to bring a mentality of let's build automated tools. Let's understand the actual code when we're working on these things. And sure, you have the technical skills, but I think the real impact for these teams is that they start being able to build up trust and rapport with the other side. And I think until you have some of those skills where the security teams can speak dev a little bit and the dev teams can speak security a bit, like the teams where I see like the, the sort of fissure between the two, it's a very, very big challenge to even get some momentum where there's some trust being built up in the process of that so that you can have a dialogue around, hey, I know that we have some very clear business goals that we need to achieve through software development. And like, of course, we want to enable that. And let's also do it in a safe way, right? Like not, but yeah. <laughs> like yeah. never use, but like in the conversation, always use and like, Let's figure out how we can mitigate risk as much as we can, right? I think the whole trend of shift left is completely lost on most cybersecurity people. Yep. I think the trend that we're going to see coming down the road is kind of more of a shift up where security and, and DevOps is going to be more of a centralized position, like a Death Star managing everything. It's going to have to happen and that's going to take huge integration. But you're right. CISOs are going to be, have to become better communicators. Developers have to learn how to communicate. There's so much to do. I've seen shift left, shift right. I've never heard the shift up, but like I saw something the other day that said shift everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Just shift. I was like, yeah, that, like, yeah, that's, yeah. Well, it's, we're moving. I, I, I liked, I like the message because it is everybody's, you know, and everybody's talked about this. It's like everybody, the security is everybody's responsibility. It absolutely is. But I do think you're right. This concept of like shift up, like until it becomes kind of a clear either set of values or an imperative from the business. And some businesses lend themselves better to this than others, right? Like payments businesses or health businesses. Like I think there's like sort of clear imperatives around those things, but it's hard when the economy is not in a great place right now. Everybody's right. really focused on trying to do their job as well as they can. And guess what goes to the wayside? Security goes to the wayside in the context right. of that stuff quickly. So maintaining a culture of transparent accountability is hard. <laughs> In any size organization. Absolutely. Well, um, there's no such thing as perfect, right? Like, I, I think that's, right. that's one of the things that I've seen people get stuck on, especially from a security perspective. And so, like, I don't think it's the wrong thing when CISOs are like, hey, I'm going to focus on not necessarily the biggest threats, but I'm going to focus on the areas where I can make positive impact and actually get momentum going mm -hmm. in the organization. 
guess what? Like it's the only option you have. And perfect is absolutely the enemy of good in the context of this stuff. And so these are very hard decisions. They're not easy decisions for these folks to make. And it's always dependent on, you got to look at the chessboard. What are the pieces I have? What's my opponent doing? Where are we going with this? And then you got to figure out where to make your moves. And it's an ever-changing landscape with that, right? So It's being aware of what are the trade-offs, right? As you pointed out. And then accepting what the risk is when you decide to move in a particular direction. If you do it well, it's not so much that you're going to be able to get perfect security or defend everything. It's more, there's no surprises. Yep. You know, when something doesn't go the way you expect, well, you know that you made a decision to move in this direction, uh, calculated risk, so to speak, and you knew what that was. I, it's interesting. We talk about the ramifications of the Joe Sullivan case. I'm curious, Andrew, do you CISOs need stronger whistleblower protections in order to be more empowered potentially? I mean, look at what happened with Mudge, former CISO over at Twitter. He was actually, you know, empowered in some ways to speak out about some of the security issues at that organization. Is that potentially what needs to happen in order to counterbalance the fact that CSOs and CISOs are going to be held more personally liable for some of the security decisions? And if they don't have the authority to handle that, what is the recourse, right? Other than just leaving and exiting the organization altogether. I mean, it's a really interesting question. It's funny because in general, I'm not a huge fan of government regulation, but I think there are certain situations where a for-profit business has a very specific focus. It's to develop profits, right? It's sort of a binding thing that they have with their shareholders. And that's that's what they're supposed to be focused on. And so I think the only scenario is that I have actually gotten behind the concept of government regulation around issues, especially in technology, is we need to help companies do the right thing and they won't do it on their own if they're left to their own devices, given the like rules of the game today, right? And so whether it's better controls for whistleblowers, or I think everybody knows that like compliance is not equal security or secure, but it's something continuing to pursue these areas where there's like standards that we can have that give CISO some protections here to say like, Hey, I put these things in place. Or if I don't have them in place, I documented why. And so they can have some recourse and protection like that. I think that's great. The real question always comes back to me for why I don't really love government regulation in the first place is who's going to put those rules together? How are they going to be administered? The devil is in the details on these things. And until we have some type of entity where you're not seeing cyclical impacts from a political perspective on these things, Mm -hmm. essentially, we need to treat technologies as a real living thing that continues to live in perpetuity. And it's not subject to cycles on these things. It's a hard challenge. It's tough to explain the complexities of this to a legislative body that still thought of the internet as a series of tubes. That's the first thing a lot of people think of is, well, we've got to regulate it. It's like they're dealing with AI. It's, you know, 75-year-old people that don't even know how to turn on their damn computer that are getting ready to regulate AI. If you kind of look at some of the underlying reasons, like Joe Sullivan, his thing was disclosure and it was covering up the disclosure. So that was his problem. Mudge, I think, just got butt hurt because nobody was listening to him. And and he took his ball and went home. So it's kind of a maturity thing that CISOs need to have as well. Part of it is when we talk to CISOs, we always make sure that they have a coach, that they're getting coached by somebody who's actually done the job before. They understand disclosure policies and regulations and those types of things. And then we always talk to them about make sure that you 
know you regularly. You know who the field offices for the FBI are. You know who these people are and you bring them in, make them part of the solution, not the problem. And so I think we have a maturity problem with senior security leadership. I beat this about the head and neck. We, we are the worst communicators ever and we need to get better. Funny you say that, Chris, because it's also one of the things that I've just like sort of reflected on over the last 15 years of being in the industry, that it is a very immature industry, like, yeah. and not immature in the context of like young people running around, but like immature in the sense that like, it just hasn't existed as a job for very long. Standards around what people should be doing, how they should be making decisions. Should they be getting coaching? Should they have insurance? What are the tools that they have to actually mitigate their own risk in terms of like what disclosures that they should be like? None of these things are standard. I think we're far from them being standard. And yet the threats and the actual organizational risk has, that's not abating at all, right? Like that's just continuing to go up. And so the responsibilities on the CISO continue to go up from a pure technical perspective. So it's a very hard job to win. It's one of the things that I like talk about a lot on the like philosophical side of stuff is that like security is such a hard job because what does winning look like? Like, how do you do well at your, how do you win at security? Like if you're a defender, right? Like, like literally, if you're like, if you're, the game. If, you're if you're managing a sales team, like winning is really clear. Like we hit right. our number. If you're managing a dev team, like winning is pretty clear. Also, like we shipped this thing. We got this thing out. We got right. new users. We got new functionality. We're impacting the business. Security, I think is like much more of a role where you're like waiting to not lose or right. you're waiting to lose. Like winning is actually yeah. just not losing another day. Until we actually are able to show and have a very clear model for, you know, CISOs have all this other stuff going on and we're so far away from this stuff. It's fine. But let's show how they can start feeling like people can win at their jobs. Right. Because they That's, don't even want to do it. Like, <laughs> Right. That is a very interesting insight. Measuring security is hard. It is totally. exceptionally hard. And not only is it really hard, it's even more difficult to map that to the business. It's one thing to say, yeah, we patched this many number of systems in the past quarter, but what is the overall benefit to the business in terms of how much revenue did we protect or how much risk did we reduce? That is exceptionally difficult. That's a whole nother like area that CISOs could just get mired down in if they focus just on that one thing. But absolutely, it's important to have at least some sort of metric from the perspective of being able to justify growth and justify, you know, yeah, wins, as you describe. Because if you don't do that, it's a depressing business. Henry, let me ask you a quick question, because you kind of brought up an interesting point about CISOs and app development. Mm -hmm. One of the trends that we're seeing right now are CISOs being fired because of something that happened to one of their third parties. Most of the time it's a third party, you know, outsourced development team that goes screw something up, but the company gets the blast zone and the CISO doesn't even know it happened, but they're the ones that took the hit. What do you think about that? I mean, if you talk to CISOs and a really common thing that they get terrified about are when they start doing acquisitions, like when the company does acquisitions. And you're inheriting an entire code base and an entire group of people the reasonable thing would be you've got six months to kind of figure something out. You put kind of a game right. plan together, like you actually start going back to their code base or just to their entire infrastructure. You can understand the risk, all that stuff. In an ideal world, you do all that in the diligence of the process of actually doing acquisition. That I mean, you might have a week. Like security teams have so little time to actually prepare for these yeah. things. And yet, Chris, to your point, the day that they get bought, if that company gets popped, 
you were responsible, right? Like, like <laughs> yeah. acquiring company got popped, right? And so the problems here are that you don't even know what assets you have. We founded Signal Sciences 10 years ago, but before that we were in-house at a company called Etsy and Etsy is an online retail company. Like that hadn't really existed that long. Like we were there in 2010. I think they founded in 2004 and it's a pure software shop. It's not like a complex business. It's just one business. Yeah. So we, we started just setting up like, Hey, let's get some monitoring into figuring out where some of our attacks are going. And this is sort of some of the stuff that led to signal sciences, but literally just getting visibility into where stuff was going. And we saw attacks coming through and we're like, what's that domain? What is that attack? Like, why do, why do we even like, why are we even seeing this? That, that's not our domain. Oh yeah. And it was like 15 domains that like were marketing sites that had been created in like six years that like people had no idea what they were. And you take that as like a one example. And this is, you know, this is what started getting our mind thinking about like, man, this is a really hard problem. You go into any other organization that like, A, is not a tech company. So they do a lot more outsourcing typically for any type of web-based software APIs. And if they've been around for anything longer than 10, let's call it 10 years, the existing team has no idea what's out there. Like absolutely none. I think that outsider's perspective on this stuff, it's flawed because most people will be like, how would you not know that? And it's like, like, do you know where every piece of paper is in an office for the last 10 years, especially if you have people that have turned over so quickly where you, I mean, how are you supposed to be able to have an inventory of these things and be able to protect them, especially when they're just on the internet, right? Like where anyone in the world can get access to these things and try to attack them. So it's like, everything sounds easier in theory than it actually is in practice. And it's very hard, I think, to not get bogged down in these things of being able to say, oh, well, yeah, the world is littered with problems. And that's why I really want security teams to be able to feel like they can get progress. And showing progress is actually makes them feel good about their jobs and feel good about like, we're yeah. showing progress. We're not perfect, but we're winning here because we're doing a really good job showing progress. Now Absolutely. that we've scared every young person into going into cybersecurity. <laughs> <laughs> well, we I mean, it shows our opportunity, right? Problems oh. <laughs> show opportunity. <laughs> we could never let them see this, this, pod, this podcast. <laughs> I'll answer this question also, but like, if you were talking to a young person getting into cybersecurity, like, what would you tell them? I'm sure you do talk to them a lot. Oh, yeah. I mentored quite a few veterans that want to get into it. And I talk about making sure that you start thinking like an executive as opposed to a practitioner. So work on your communication skills, put a map on where you want to be. A lot of times, a lot of the young cybersecurity folks that I talk to, especially the ones that come out of the military, they all think threat intelligence is cool. And then you ask, well, what's threat intelligence? Well, it's, it just sounds good. You know, I did intelligence in the military, so they don't have an understanding of kind of a career path or the where, where they want to go. Yeah. Most of them don't want to go work in a sock, but that's a great way to cut your teeth. My advice to people that are getting into the, in the industry is really do your homework, figure out where you can make a mark and then exploit that, but also work on your soft skills and I training. Yeah. I love that so much. It's like it's one of the things I talk to people about all the time. It's if you get other people in your organization to like you, yeah. you will be a better security person. Because yeah, you're constantly never... asking the rest of the org for favors. And if they don't like you, they're not going to do anything for you. But like right. buy them a beer at some point, like get them a t-shirt if they submit a vulnerability internally, like or very, very small things can go a very long way. To both disproving the sort of myth of like security people are curmudgeons and they don't like working with anyone. Like if you just show a little bit of just openness, it can go a very long way. So I, I love that advice, Chris. Oh, we used to be the guys in a dark closet, you know, 
playing Dungeons and Dragons and drinking a Mountain Dew. I mean, I still do that, but like you know, oh, yeah. it, it doesn't mean you <laughs> can't. <laughs> it doesn't mean you can't go and talk to people. Also, you know, like they I mean, look at our look at our fancy look, look at our fancy background. You know, <laughs> so. exactly. Well, gentlemen, this is a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us today. And Chris, as always, it's been a pleasure talking with you about these topics as well. For our audience at home or at the office, in case you have further questions about what we covered today, please DM us at The Threat Show. Or if you have other ideas of other topics we should cover in future episodes, please let us know as well. Thanks again. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for tuning into The Threat Show. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and interact with us on Twitter at The Threat Show. Also, be sure to subscribe to Fletch's interactive newsletter and Trending Threats app to go deeper into the stories we discuss and the Threat Index. Be sure to stay tuned to stay ahead of threats. 